invite you to open to the epistle of 1 John, where we are going through this epistle, uh, which has the theme, generally, of granting assurance to the believer, or pointing out how we might have assurance in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, the first letter of John, the first epistle of John, uh, could be briefly summarized as an epistle that says, this is written so that you may know you have eternal life. Well, this morning, we will be looking at 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 through 6, where John calls us to examine the evidence of our life, to examine our lives as they are, and to see whether or not they compare to the way a Christian ought to live their life, whether or not we are obeying the Lord God, whether or not we are walking in the footsteps, as it were, of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're looking at verses 3 through 6, but I'd like to begin reading in verse 1 of 1 John chapter 2. So let's read now the word of God given to us in the scripture. 1 John 2, beginning in verse 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Please pray with me. Lord our God, you have given us your word. You have blessed us with this truth. You have revealed to us what we are to believe about you and the duty that you require of us in the scriptures. And we ask now as we come to your word this morning, you would once again show us glorious things. You would once again show us your will for our lives and that you would once again point us to the Lord Jesus Christ in whom we have salvation and whom we have hope. We ask these things in his name. Amen. Children and adults, I suppose, but mostly children, I want you to imagine for a moment that you are having a birthday party. It's your birthday, and now the day has arrived when you are able to have a party and all of your friends come to this party. You're having a good time. You're, you're celebrating. Everybody is talking about how you've gotten older and, and how exciting it is. And then you suggest to all of your friends that you would like to go outside and play tag. Your friends all look at you and say, no, I don't want to do that. So you're taking a little aback and you say, well, 
how about we go kick around a soccer ball? And they say, no, I don't want to do that either. She said, well, would you like to play a, a, a card game? No, I don't want to do that either. How would you feel? What would you think? I suspect that if it was your birthday, you were you're the birthday boy or the birthday girl, and you wanted to do something, but nobody else wanted to do it, you probably would not feel very happy about that. You might be hurt, probably be confused. You might begin to wonder if these people which have come to your party are really even your friends. What does that have to do with 1 John chapter 2? It's not a very good illustration, but I think it raises for us a very good question, which John also asks of us here in this chapter. Can you really be considered a friend of God if every time you see what God has said in his word, every time you see what God wants you to do from his word, you say, no, I don't want to. Do you truly have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ if you ignore everything which he says you ought to do? I think all of us in this room probably know right off the bat, we know intuitively, no, that that doesn't sound like a very good relationship at all. And yet there are many, many, as John will point out to us this morning, who do claim to have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, but who do not do what he commands. And John wants us to examine our lives to make sure that that is not us. See, John, throughout this entire epistle, has, has been directing our attention to the Lord Jesus Christ and, and directing us in how we are to live our lives and how we are to walk so that we might know that we have eternal life, so that we might know that we are in relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And he wants us to make sure of these things. He doesn't want us to just say, well, I think. He wants us to say, I know. This morning in 1 John 2, verses 3 through 6, John wants us to see that the Christian sees the beauty of God's law and he obeys because he loves God and because he wants to be like Jesus. That's John's point. The Christian obeys God's law because he sees that it's actually a beautiful gift of God. He loves God and he wants to be like Jesus. Does that describe you? Well, I'd like to look at, at this brief passage uh, in, in three headings. John does something interesting with the structure here. He kind of sandwiches the examination in between two pieces of evidence. And so that's how we'll look at this text with the sandwich. First, John talks about evidence of salvation, that is, obedience. In verse 3. And then the middle part of the sandwich, he talks about examining our lives, comparing the one life, which says something but does not do it, 
with a life that says something and does do it. The examination in verses 4 and the beginning of verse 5. And then finally, the second piece of examination. The bottom slice of bread, if you will. The evidence of a living communion with the Lord Jesus Christ. A living relationship. So evidence, examination, evidence. Very brief, very easy to remember. Very important for us to know so that we might know that we have eternal life. We remember, as we read here in context, that John has has begun this whole entire section with a reminder that the Lord Jesus Christ is the advocate and propitiation for the people of God. That is, he stands or sits actually at the Father's right hand, but, but stands as our representative, figuratively, before God, defending us, declaring our righteousness, advocating for us. And he stands by us uh, through thick and thin as our advocate. And the Lord Jesus Christ does this because he is the propitiation for our sins. He is the one who sacrificed his life on our behalf. He is the one who bore the wrath of God in place of all of his people. He is the one who has made full atonement for the sins of his people, bearing all the punishment which they should have borne, taking it for them, and granting to them his very righteousness. So John takes this idea and then moves on into our examination of our life by telling us that there is very strong evidence which will tell us whether or not this same Jesus, our advocate and propitiation, telling us whether or not we have a relationship with him. Look then with me at verse 3 where we'll see this evidence. We read there, By this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. John here says that we can know. We can know. We have a certainty of our salvation. We may have assurance of our salvation. We may understand that our salvation is a present reality in light of this evidence. That's what he means by this word to know. Literally, we are knowing presently, actively, right now, in this moment in time. You may have knowledge of your salvation. Well, this is very interesting because oftentimes I think we might look at our lives and we don't know. Oh, we say, well, I know that God promises me that whoever believes in the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. I know that God promises me in his word that uh, whoever comes to Christ will not be cast out. I know those things, but I don't really feel saved all the time. Well, isn't it so good that God is true, that his promises are sure, and whether or not we are saved is not based on our feelings. You see, assurance is not subjective. 
assurance is part of an objective truth. We may look to the promises of God. We may look to the graces which God works in us so that we have an objective assurance, not a mere feeling and not a wistful hope. But we may know, as John says. John says we know that we have come to know when we obey commandments. We, we have come to know. John here is speaking of not a head knowledge, but a heart knowledge. John is speaking here of, of a covenantal relationship. John says you may know, you may have assurance that you are actually in right relationship with the Lord. John says you may know that you don't just know facts about God, but that you know the living and true God. See, we know God. We don't just know about God. You'd think kind of of an illustration. Well, you might say that you know an actor because you've read a lot about them online or in a magazine, but do you actually know them? No. But do you know your husband or, or your wife, children? Do you know your parents? Yes. You have a relationship with them. That's what John drives at here. He says that you may be certain of a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ if you keep his commandments. The Lord Jesus Christ said in John 14, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So what John draws our attention to here is the evidence of God's grace working in our lives. This evidence points us to the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ, by his spirit, has done a work in our lives. And we may therefore have every confidence in God that he has indeed saved us. When John speaks of keeping the commandments, he speaks of not just obeying them, uh, out of a sense of duty, though, though it is there, but also of, of holding them dear, of guarding them, of being uh, close to them, as it were. See, the Christian, because of the work of God in their lives, sees the law of God as this precious thing. This is the will of God which he's given to us. This is... This is God's desire for how we should live our lives. This is the means which God uses to preserve us as we seek to live our lives in this world. So often I, I, we can come to God's law and look at it and think, well, this is, this is difficult. It looks like God has given us chores to do. But it isn't chores to do. It's a pathway to walk on, which keeps us safe. Uh, down in Florida, we have large bodies of water. There are big reptiles which like to swim around in those bodies of water. And many times we have walkways, bridges, boardwalks, things like that, and they have guardrails on each side of them. And as you're walking down those, I don't think anyone has ever thought, well, this is just so restrictive. I'd like to take a path through the water right there. And you certainly don't think that when you look down and you see the eyes of an alligator staring back up at you. 
It's the same thing with God's law. It's not restricting us, saying, well, there's other things you could be doing which would be more pleasant. It's a pathway which leads us to the celestial city, which shows us how God would have us live our lives and which protects us from the dangers of sin which lie on either side of the path. It's a good and a beautiful thing. And those who have a relationship with God recognize that. Do you recognize that? Sometimes it needs to be pointed out to us. Sometimes, as we are living our lives, going along, trying to obey God's law, we do struggle with sin and we think, this is too much, I can't do it. We begin to think of it as chores. We ought to remind ourselves. We ought to remind others. We ought to be reminded by others of the beauty of God's law, the glory of it, the care of God, which is exhibited in his giving of the law. And the obedience will then remind us the one who loves God obeys. This is evidence of our salvation. And it's a very ordinary evidence. God has given us ordinary things to remind us that we are his and, and he is ours. We don't need extraordinary gifts. Indeed, nowhere in the Bible does it say that extraordinary gifts are evidences of salvation. But it does say that very ordinary things, like humble obedience, are evidences of salvation. Remember that. When you see evidences of grace in your life, rejoice and thank God that you are one of his. If you don't see evidences of grace, ask the Lord to restore you and help you to obey so that you might have that evidence and be assured. Well, that's the first thing which, which John points out to us is this evidence of obedience. He also reminds us then, that we need to examine our lives in light of this. Look at verses 4 and 5. John writes there, Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. And so John presents to us these two people, Mr. Hypocrite and Mr. Christian. And says, compare your lives to these two people and see who you look more like. The first person, the first person says, I know God. The first person says, I'm in relationship with God. Yes, I'm a Christian. I was baptized. I'm a member in good standing at my church. I bring cookies to fellowship meals. Of course I'm a Christian. But at the same time, this person does not keep Christ's commandments. Oh, outwardly, he looks like he should be part of the people of God, but inwardly, he's like that child at the birthday party who says, no, I don't want to. I don't want to obey God. I don't like doing these things God's told me to do. It cramps my style. It restricts me from living my life for me. This person says one thing and does another. He's a hypocrite. 
Worse than that, as John calls him, he's a liar. And the truth is not in him. John reminds us of that same phrase which he used in chapter 1. Of the person who says that he doesn't have any sin. The truth isn't in him. He has no relationship with the truth. No part with the truth. In fact, his life is the very opposite of truth. This is a person whose life does not match his claim. But. But. And it's always so amazing when scripture gives us that word. But whoever keeps his word, Christ's word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. There is a person who says one thing and does the other, but there are people who say they are in right relationship with God, and they are. And they may know. And they may know because of the work of God in their life. They keep God's law. They hold fast to it. Not perfectly, surely. None of us can, can obey God's law perfectly. But we strive to, to give glory to God. This person strives to. And in him, John says, the love of God is perfected. This, this is actually a very astounding phrase. It's a little bit confusing in the English, and it's a lot confusing actually in the Greek. But it's astounding nonetheless, because what John is saying here is the person who knows God, who, who loves God, the person who is obeying God, whose life gives evidence of this relationship with God, his love for God, which he has right now, this love which produces good works, this love is perfect. In the future, but because it's perfect in the future, it's just as true that it's perfect right now. Like I said, a bit confusing. It's a, it's a propelectic future. I think what I read is, is what it's called. It means something which is true in the future, and because of that, it's basically as true right now. It's only used a couple times in the New Testament. It's an astounding phrase. Have you ever thought about that? Your love for God, your love for the Lord Jesus Christ, which fuels you, which encourages you, which, which helps you to look at God's law and say, oh, this is, this is amazing. All right, I want to keep this. That love is considered by God to be a, a whole love. A perfect love. God doesn't look at your, your love for him and says, well, because sometimes it's cold, because sometimes it's lacking, because it's imperfect, I'm going to disregard it. No, God looks at it and he says, because I have saved you and because I am sanctifying you and because I will glorify you and you will be completely perfect in the future, right now I regard your love to be all the love which you must give me. Now, surely we will grow in our love for God. We will grow in our obedience. But God doesn't measure that growth and say, well, I'm certainly glad you love me now more than you loved me last week. The Lord works in us by his spirit and produces love in us 
And he accepts it. And he accepts our obedience because of that love. Isn't this an amazing truth? The Lord loves it when we obey him. Because he loves us. The Lord loves it when we obey him because it's evidence of our love for Christ. And he delights in it because he delights in Christ. Do you see how it it all works together? That God is the one who works in us both to will and to work. And then he accepts that work as though it was from us. It's like a father picking up heavy boxes and carrying them from one room to another. And his little four-year-old son comes up to him and says, can I help? You say, yes. So you as the father the mother or whoever picks up the box and the four-year-old grabs the box and doesn't actually really do anything, but they're still helping. You still say thank you for your help. You still shower them with praise and love. It's very much like that. The Spirit works in us to will and to work. God is the one who does all the heavy lifting and and we come alongside and we're like, God, did, did you see what I did for you? And he says, well done. I'm proud of you. Here, help me with another box. Go for it. The love of God is is great and deep. And it is amazing. And it works in us so that we may know that we are God's children. This is the examination which you ought to make. Who do you look like? Does your life match your claim? Not perfectly. Surely, but does the general pattern of your life match your claim? Or are you saying one thing and doing the other? We ought to all compare our lives to that and examine them. We ought to examine them in the evidence of obedience. We also need to examine our lives according to the evidence of communion, which is what John draws our attention to in the last couple of verses. Look at the second half of verse 5 through verse 6. John writes there that, Whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. And now the evidence. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So as John said that we may know that we've come to know him, he also says we may know that we are in him. We may know that not only are we in covenant with God, we may also know that we have union with Christ. Whenever you read in scripture this this phrase in him, when it refers to Christ, the author is drawing your attention back to this glorious truth of union with Christ. The fact that it is in Christ and, and through Christ that we have salvation. That we are the vines which are united to the branch The branch which gives us life. We are the branches grafted into a tree. The sap which flows up from the root of the tree gives life to us. And we produce fruit because of that sap. Because of the life which the one to whom we are united gives us. John reminds us that union with Christ is the thing which we need to have knowledge of. Just as much as covenant with God is the thing which we need to have assurance of. John says we may know that we are united to him. We may 
know that whoever abides in him. John points us to our union with Christ by saying that we know we are in him. He points us also to our communion with Christ with this phrase, abiding in him. Because union with Christ and communion always go hand in hand. Here is very evident and it's quite a wonderful reminder. Those who are united to Christ have fellowship with Christ. You don't get to be a vine grafted into the branch and then just ignore the branch. And why would you? That branch is the one who gives you life. John says that whoever abides in Christ, whoever dwells with Christ, lives with him, sojourns with him, whoever lives their life following Christ, alongside Christ, this person ought to walk in the same way that Christ walked. This isn't a suggestion. This is a reminder that those who are united to Christ, those who have communion with Christ, are duty-bound as servants of Christ to obey him. That's what, that's what John means by this, this word ought. It's a sense of, sense of obligation, indebtedness, like a knight, children, who was fighting against the king. And he's captured. He goes before the king and he thinks, well, this is it for me. I'm going to be executed. And the king says, no, I forgive you. Now swear fealty to me and fight in my army. Well, the knight receives that kind of forgiveness and he swears fealty. He gives his oath to the king that he'll be the king's knight. Does the knight just do whatever he wants? No, he is bound by his oath to obey the king. And he will do that work. We, because of our union with Christ, in light of our communion with him, our love for him, we, we see the great forgiveness which he's given to us. Same as that night and we say, Lord, I swear my life to you. Tell me what you would have me to do and I will do it. A biblical example of this would be Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 56, when Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up, and he sees that the Lord is the holy, holy, holy God, and he realizes how sinful he is, and he thinks, wow, I'm, I'm going to disintegrate. The Lord forgives him. He has an angel touch his mouth with a, with a burning coal to signify that he's been cleansed. And then the Lord says, who am I going to send to these people in Isaiah basically jumps up and down with his hand in the air and says, pick me, Lord, pick me, send me, I'll go. Isaiah, in light of the forgiveness, bound himself to do what God commanded him to do. That is what John is talking about here. We who are united to Christ have sworn fealty to Christ and therefore we must live lives which are in conformity to Christ. We walk in the same way in which he walked. And this is not burdensome. We know it's not burdensome because Christ promises that it's not burdensome. The Lord Jesus Christ says, Come to me, you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. And learn of me. For my yoke is easy 
And my burden is light. Children, you may not know what a yoke is. Back a long time ago, actually in the days of my grandfather, so maybe it wasn't quite as long ago as we might like to think, they used to pull plows with two cows, well, boy, steers, really, but they would be joined together with a big wooden bow. It would go over the neck of one on one side, and it would go over the neck of another. And these two cattle who were pulling the plow were not allowed to go in two opposite directions because they were joined together with the yoke. And one of them was always older and more experienced. And so he was the leader. And the younger, inexperienced one went along with the leader. And that is how people successfully plowed their fields, that they had two steers who were just going off in different directions. Nothing would ever get done, but they were well-trained. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you. It's easy. It's not difficult. I will direct you. I will lead you how you should go. Follow after me. Walk in the ways which I tell you to walk. I'll guide you. I'll lead you. It is not burdensome. That's walking in Christ's ways. It's it's following after him. Going in his footsteps. It's keeping in step with him. It's walking in his ways. And walking in his ways, we are reminded, or at least we should be reminded, of this great truth. Christ obeyed the law perfectly. If we are to walk in God's ways, we are called to be like our older brother. How do we do that? How can we do that? We can't. But that is why the Lord gives to us the righteousness of Christ. And that is why he sanctifies us by his spirit. Setting us more and more apart. Making us more and more holy. So that we are enabled more and more and more and more to walk after Christ. So that though in this life we cannot do it perfectly, when we are glorified, we will cast our crowns before Christ and say, this is all due to you, Lord Jesus. And the Lord will say, well done, good and faithful servant. We are oath-bound. We're called to walk after Christ. And in being called to do that, we should be reminded of who he is and what he's done so that we may look to him as we seek to obey him. Our time is almost done. So I would like to close here with just a few questions of application. See, John has reminded us of this evidence and called us to examine our lives, and so let us examine our lives in light of this evidence. How are you doing in obeying the Lord? Do you desire to obey? If you do, that's a very good sign. If you do not desire to obey God, if you think, I don't want to have anything to do with God's law, that's not a good sign. 
If you have no desire to obey the Lord, then I implore you, I exhort you, I beg you, please, please turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and ask him to give you a heart which loves him, which truly loves him and which loves his law. Don't continue in a life that says, well, I belong to the church, I'm fine. I don't need to obey God. Outwardly, I'm a Christian. You must inwardly be a Christian as well. For those of you who do love God's law and who desire to obey it and who struggle to obey it, take heart. Ask the Lord to help you. He desires for you to grow. He will help you to do so. And think about how much of a gift God's law is, uh, how it it protects us, how it's not a a harsh taskmaster, but how it's like the bridge which protects us from creatures on either side of it. Think about that and, and ask the Lord to use that to remind you of the great gift which God's law is. Let that fuel you when you are tempted to ignore God's law because you think, well, this this is too difficult for me right now. It's just too much to do right. I'm so busy with other things. And it's okay if I just break it a little bit here or a little bit there. That'll help me get ahead in life. And then once everything's settled down, then I'll obey God's law. No, don't ignore God's law. It really is not a heavy burden. A task which we in our own power cannot accomplish, surely. But it is a gift from God. Remember that. Remember. That the Lord loves his people. That he loves for us to be obedient. That as much as you would love to help your child, your little child, move a box that's too heavy for them and praise them for the work which they've accomplished. The Lord loves when you obey while he's working in you to will and obey. He loves that and he loves to praise you even more than you would love to praise your own children. Too often we think of God as a stern and and angry father. He is stern against sin. But he is far more loving than any of us can ever imagine. So loving, in fact, that he sent his only begotten son. It was the father who sent the son to redeem the people whom he had chosen. Remember that. When you look at God's law and you seek to obey it. I do hope this evening that you've seen how the Christian sees the beauty of God's law. I hope that you see the beauty of God's law. And I hope that this will help you to obey God out of your love for him. And because in obeying the God's law, we get to be more like the Lord Jesus Christ who obeyed God's law perfectly. Let's pray. Our Lord, we do thank you for the law which you've given to us. We thank you that the Lord Jesus Christ
fully and completely kept the law in our behalf so that all which we do now is done out of love for you and to glorify you. Help us, O Lord, to trust in Christ and his perfect work on our behalf and help us, Lord, to obey you out of love and thanksgiving. Lord, we know that you are the one who works in us. Keep us from taking pride in our own works. Help us to remain humble and help us to depend solely on you to work in us that obedience which you have called us to do. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.